Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. We finished up 1 Peter, and today we're going to do an introduction to 2 Peter. In 1 Peter, Peter lays out some very clear instructions about how to behave, but in 2 Peter, he takes the gloves off. And he has some very strong words towards false teachers. He has some very strong words about how the Christian believer is supposed to behave. He's going to remind them who's writing these words. He is an eyewitness of the glory of Christ. And his words carry weight and importance. Second Peter, to me, is the more important of the two letters that he wrote, just from the point of view that this is the last thing he wrote before he dies. He's going to be killed by Nero in Rome around the same time that Nero kills Paul. So sit back, grab your coffee, and join me as I think with my mouth open. Oh, and as before, please know that the music you hear in the background is off an album called Finding Joy by Joy Ferguson, a collection of hymns played by her on her flute. The entire family worked with her on this. Uh, you're going to hear certain spots where I'm playing guitar or bass. My son's playing guitar or bass. Joy's playing flute, of course. This album, again titled Finding Joy, can be found on almost any streaming service that you have out there. So, Without any further ado, let's get started. Introduction to 2 Peter. Have a great day. I'll see you later. Bye-bye. Welcome again to Coffee, the Bible, and Page. I thoroughly enjoyed my time in 1 Peter. I'm going to enjoy my time in 2 Peter again. In keeping with uh, I, the the path that I think God has me walking on as far as my devotions go, I'm reading last letters, last things. Uh, we read John's last communications, his gospel and his epistles. We read Paul's last letter to Timothy. And we read Peter's second to last or next to last letter to the churches in Asia Minor. And now... We're going to be introduced to his very last communique, his very last letter to the people in Asia Minor. The time frame is about AD 65-ish. Uh, that's about just, I think that was the time that Peter was executed by Nero along with Paul. So that places this letter really close to the end of his life and he knew it was coming. He knew, he knew what was getting ready to happen to him. And one thing, though, let's, let's remind us, I'm, 
I'm a history nut, and I like to see the cultural context and the historical context of things. So let's take a look at a map here real quick. This is the Mediter Mediterranean world in the first century. The uh, orange line and the yellow line, they represent the march of the church. Now, when the church began in Acts, when the Holy Spirit fell and Peter preached to the multitude for the very first time, uh, it's safe to say that the center of the church was Jerusalem. Because, gosh, isn't that where they were? Yes. So the church center was Jerusalem, and it enjoyed incredible growth. Uh, but as God opened up the eyes to the apostles uh, through Peter, as a matter of fact, that Gentiles could also be led into the kingdom. The church started moving out towards the area of the Gentiles. And what we have here is that the center of the church was Jerusalem, and then it became Antioch. Now, there's two Antiochs here. I'm not sure if it was this Antioch or this Antioch, which was the next center of the church expansion. But one of those two Antiochs, I kind of think it might be the one to the left because it's in the middle of Asia Minor, but I don't know. All I know is Antioch became very, very important in church history. And the center of the church kind of migrated from Jerusalem to Antioch. James, one of the apostles, uh, was beheaded in Jerusalem. And I think that kind of pushed the church out. The persecution pushed the church out of Jerusalem. Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul, was part of this persecution. And it scattered the church out of Jerusalem. So the church just kind of shifted its headquarters to Antioch, one of these two Antiochs. And then as the church continued to make its march into the Roman Empire, the next obvious center would be Ephesus. And Ephesus was a very, very important city uh, to Rome and rivaled Rome in uh, its wealth and, and influence. Uh, it was a huge trading center um, for the entire region, if not the entire empire. So the church center moved to Ephesus and that's where John the apostle ended up living. Uh, this is where legend has it that John took Mary, the mother of Jesus, to live. And uh, in Asia Minor, of which, which Ephesus is a part, that became the center of focus for almost all of God's work in the first century. In the, in the midst, especially in the midst of the first century, you have all the seven churches that John mentions in Revelation, they're in this area. Peter ministered in this area. He was writing to this area when he wrote his epistles. Uh, John was writing to this area when he wrote his epistles and his gospel. This became uh, the primary breeding ground of first century Christianity after the church leadership moved out of Antioch. Ephesus became the next thing. Well, the next thing after Antioch and Ephesus was Rome. Paul ended up going to Rome. Peter went to Rome. Uh, Paul made several excursions to Rome. Um, Rome was the de facto capital of the world at that time. The Roman Empire was huge and expansive and it made sense to go right to Rome. And that's where Paul went. 
and that's where Peter ended up. And that's where they both were when Nero killed them. Now, the interesting thing about the Roman Empire is that the very existence of the Roman Empire is what allowed the Christian faith to expand so rapidly and so completely throughout this area because of their roads. Rome, Rome's kingdoms, their roads and their transportation, it was amazing. And it made it easier, much easier, to go from place to place because they connected their entire empire so well with these roads. So the Christian empire, a Christian empire, hmm, it became a Christian empire, much to my sadness and dismay. But the Christian faith spread rapidly throughout this entire area and gained a solid foothold in the Roman Empire. And as you see here, it moved from Jerusalem to Antioch to Ephesus and then to Rome. Now, when Peter's writing this letter, he's writing this epistle from Rome. It's just before his death. Paul is there. Makes you kind of wonder if Paul and Peter talked much. Don't know. I guess we'll find out when God calls us home. We can ask that question. But this was a very, very pivotal time in the Christian church. God was getting, re was getting ready to shut the curtain on the first generation believers, leaders, eyewitnesses of Christ. And he's getting ready to raise the curtain on the second act of the church, which is the second generation of believers, people like Timothy, folks like that. Peter and Paul are getting ready to die. John will die in the next 15 to 20 years. So John's going to be around a little while longer. But Peter and Paul are getting ready to exit this earth. So, all right, so there's your overview of what's happening culturally, historically at that time. I wish I had more time to study that kind of stuff because I just love first century history. All right, so let's get back to our review here, or our preview, I should say. This logo, Second Peter, a chosen people. Um, if you remember from our first epistle that Peter wrote, he's writing uh, to the people in Asia Minor, and he calls them the diaspora, the exiles. And the language he uses is flavored with Jewish concepts. So it makes you think that his primary audience might be the Jewish believers who have escaped Jerusalem and are now living in Asia Minor because he makes continual references to things that a Jewish believer would surely understand. And one of the things primary in the Jewish thinking was that the Jewish nation, Israel, was a chosen people. They were chosen by God, and they were and are, I believe. But there has been a new branch grafted into the Jewish vine, and that's the Gentiles. And now the word a chosen people has expanded its meaning. It's not just the Jewish people from Israel, but all who call upon the name of Christ, Jewish and Gentile, you are a chosen people. So let's just go over a few things. And uh, today won't be an incredibly long time, 
but we'll just we're going to set the stage for Second Peter, and then we're going to tomorrow we'll be uh, wrap up Saturday, and we'll just wrap up First and Second Peter what we've done so far, and Second Peter will start in earnest on Monday. Second Peter, it was the last letter written before he is dead at Nero's hand. And Peter knows it's coming. He says, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. I don't know how the Lord made it clear to him, but Peter is totally and thoroughly convinced that he is soon to be dead. And if legend is correct, he was going to be crucified, which was a favorite method of execution and torture by Nero. Um, if legend has it correctly, Peter requested that he be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be killed in the same manner as his Lord. Which in a way is merciful to Peter because being hung upside down, you'll die much quicker. Uh, just by the mechanics of that whole process. So Peter knows he's going to go. And this is his last letter. And that makes this letter really important. In his first epistle, probably written a couple years before this, he writes some pretty, he writes some general instruction and he's firm, but he's still the loving apostle who's in love with the people that he uh, has ministered to over the years in Asia Minor. But this letter, this letter is hard hitting. It's like he takes the gloves off. We'll see that as we proceed through this. He starts off by just telling us, look, how we act is important. It's not enough to just say you're saved. He goes into great detail about what we need to do. It's not enough just to have faith. And I don't, uh, I really don't want to sound like this is faith and works. Faith plus works to get saved. But Peter makes a very important instruction in this book. He said, in this verse, he says, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness and knowledge, and self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection and love. These, and we'll explain when we get into that part of the of, of his letter, how this isn't uh, works-based salvation. But I sometimes think one of the things that I know I did for years, and I confess this, I did not emphasize behavior. I emphasize saving faith. This is how you get saved. And and I make it, and for years, I made it really easy to be saved. To, you don't just, just say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior and uh, ask him into your heart. Forgive me of my sins. You know, I went through all the formulas that we've always had and, and none of that is wrong. But the next part if you're truly a believer, if you are truly a believer, this is going to be showing up in your life. Increasing amounts of goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, 
mutual affection, and love. How we act is important. And Peter made the distinction in the last letter, and we've heard it from John and we've heard it from Paul, that the mark of a true believer will be seen in how they live. The signature of a believer is a changed life. You were once dead to Christ and alive to sin, Paul said. Now you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. You have access to everything you need to live a holy life. And we're going to see Peter talk about that. And then Peter reminds them, look, look who's writing this. We didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's reminding them, I'm an eyewitness. This isn't something I'm doing for kicks, grins, and giggles. I am an eyewitness of his majesty. We ourselves heard the voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain when it said, this is my son whom I love. With, whom, with him I am well pleased. So, Peter is going to be reminding them in this epistle that behavior is important. And to back up that, that command, if you will, to behave as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, he reminds them, I'm an eyewitness. I know what I'm talking about. Then he takes the gloves off later on in the in the epistle and he slams into false teachers with the harshest language of almost any of the New Testament writers that I've seen. There is a whole several paragraphs of just absolute condemnation of the people that are beginning to wreak havoc in the church through their false teachings. And these are some examples. He's going to say stuff like, these people are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Hmm. In other words, a spring delivers what? Water? But these people appear to be springs bringing water and nourishment, but there's no water there. Mist driven by a storm. A mist, that's a cloud, that's a fog that has that does nothing. The storm does things, but the fog, the mist does nothing. They're going to bring darkness like the darkness of a storm with great power, but fog brings nothing. They're nothing. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they've done. These aren't people who are mistaken in their theology. These are people who, are, who with intention are hurting the body of Christ for their own good. Now, we've seen before in John's Gospels and First Peter that heretics, these false teachers, it's all about them. Um, they, they are taking advantage of the body of Christ for their own profit. Some of them are doing it for money. Some of them are doing it for prestige. But, I mean, it's a very coordinated, thought-out, premeditated, attack on the body of Christ to use these gullible Christians for their own good. P 
Peter's going to tear into them in this passage. And he says, and they themselves, they're slaves of depravity. If you look into their lives, you will see that what they are is very self-centered. The, the mark of a Christian is outward focus. You love God. You love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You love the neighbor, those around you, as yourself. Love is outward focused. Agape love. All forms of love is outward focused. These people are not outward focused. They're inward focused. It's what's in it for them. And frankly, the body of Christ has always been a lucrative group of people to take advantage of. Because we're following after our God and we're trying to love and we want to believe in the best in people. And the church has continually been taken advantage of throughout the centuries. Peter is going to tear into them like nobody's business. And then he hinted at this in his first letter about the second coming of the Messiah. And he wants to set the record straight about what that's going to be like. The day of the Lord will come as a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. He dons a prophet's hat here a little bit and tells him what the future day of the Lord will be like. First of all, it's going to come like a thief. It's going to show up when nobody's looking. He's going to sneak in. But then everything explodes. God, with his power and his might, is going to destroy the elements and destroy the earth and everything in it. And all on that day of judgment, everything that these people, these false teachers have done will be laid bare. It's going to be a violent end to this time. Apparently false teachers back then were saying that Christ had already come back and they missed it. And uh, there's been, a, and from that moment to this, there have been so many teachings on the second coming of Christ, what it'll be like. The rapture is a popular uh, point of view. And we'll talk about that a little bit uh, when it comes time for that. But know this, this second letter from Peter is his most important one in my mind because this is the last thing. This is his last letter. John wrote what he deemed most important in his gospel and his epistles because those were his last written communiques before he died. He wanted to make sure his followers understood his heart and what he felt was most important. This is Peter's last letter. And he just pulls the gloves off and hits hard. This will not be an easy letter to listen to in some in in some ways because he's very straightforward but this is the last written letter from one of Jesus's most prized I shouldn't that's the wrong word word for it one of his most loved disciples and this is the letter from the disciple who betrayed him more deeply than any of the others one of the inner three that turned his back on Jesus 
during his crucifixion and whom Jesus has reinstated and given confidence to and given a great responsibility to. This is a man who really understands what grace is and what mercy is and what forgiveness is. And this apostle to whom the most was forgiven has some very powerful things to tell us in this epistle. So I'm looking forward to this. And we're going to start this on Monday. Tomorrow, we're just going to have wrap-up Saturday and, and have a short time of just reminding ourselves what First Peter was all about. And then we will move on from there. So there you have it, ladles and jelly spoons. Here's my coffee. Page, the Bible. I'm out of here. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. I'll see you tomorrow on Wrap Up Saturday.